hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, before I deliver my opening remarks on this hearing, let me take a moment to acknowledge the senseless massacre at Robb Elementary School in Ovalde, Texas, an overwhelmingly Latino community. Once again, we're faced with the heartache and despair of witnessing a mass shooting that takes the lives of children who, like any other child in America, went to school to learn not to be executed. Let's be clear. Every mass shooting is the result of a policy failure. Guns, especially assault weapons equipped with high-capacity magazines, don't belong in our communities. And in no circumstances do those who seek to do harm with such weapons have greater rights than the nation's children to whom we have a precious obligation to protect. And while our thoughts and prayers are with each one of the families that are grieving this unimaginable loss, we must go beyond thoughts and prayers and take action. Every day that goes by without common sense, gun reform is a setback in our ability to promote American virtue and values to the rest of the world. I have three granddaughters. One is in elementary school now in a kindergarten. She goes through active shooter drills. What are we waiting for? There must be some common ground under which we can ultimately come together to prevent these senseless acts of violence. Turning to today's hearing, I appreciate, uh, Mr. Malley, your appearance today. I appreciate your service to our country. Um, and I appreciate the administration's efforts in attempting to negotiate a longer and stronger JCPOA. But the facts are the facts. As we meet here on May 25th, 2022, Iran is closer than ever to developing a nuclear weapon. It is on the brink of enriching enough 60% uranium for a nuclear weapon. The Iran of May 2022 is a much more dangerous threat and a far less interested party in negotiating than the Iran of 2015. A deal under which Iran has far less than a six-month breakout time with sanctions relief in return that will unlock millions of dollars and no sunset extensions is definitely not longer and stronger. It is shorter and weaker. Now, clearly, this reality is in part due to President Trump's decision to walk away from the JCPOA without a plan, a strategy, or any allies alongside. The U.S. having left the agreement, Iran decided it no longer needed to abide by it and rushed forward with accelerating its enrichment capabilities to the doorstep of nuclear-grade uranium. Iran made this decision even though our European allies had stayed in the deal. As the administration worked with our allies to negotiate a return to 2015 nuclear deal, Iran worked to stockpile nuclear material. As the administration negotiated, Iranian drones loaded with ball bearings and shrapnel hit American facilities. As the administration negotiated, Iran has developed what former CENTCOM Commander General Frank McKenzie says is, quote, overmatch in its ballistic missile program. So it can launch more missiles than the United States and our partners can shoot down. Missiles that Iran points at U.S. troops in the region. Missiles that Iran points at our ally, the state of Israel, which Iranian leaders have said should be, quote, 
wiped off the face of the earth. Meanwhile, Iran unlawfully detains American citizens and citizens of our European allies on trumped-up charges for political chits. And lest we forget, Iran abuses, oppresses, and violates the human rights of its own citizens. In short, Iran has dragged out this process, driving up its demands and exerting its leverage, convincing the world that the United States wants the JCPOA more than the Iranian regime does. After months of negotiation, this is the Iran we must contend with, not the Iran you hoped would be driven by practical considerations at the bargaining table. Today's Iran is buoyed by China, who, it is reported, just in April, imported 650,000 barrels a day of oil from Iran, oil which should be subject to U.S. sanctions. Even at discounted prices, this has resulted in a flood of cash for the regime, tens of millions of dollars per day. Today, Iran is protected by Russia. Iran thinks it has options. If Iran wants to extract a better deal or concede less than U.S. national security demands, it can turn to its autocratic allies. Now, the administration said months ago that without a return to the original 2015 agreement by the end of last February, the nonproliferation benefits of the deal would be greatly diminished. To quote Secretary Blinken on January 21st of 2022, which is four months ago, he said, quote, the talks with Iran about a mutual return to compliance with the JCPOA have reached a decisive moment. If a deal is not reached in the next few weeks, Iran's ongoing nuclear advances will make it impossible to return to the JCPOA. Close quote. It's late May. It's three months later than that determination. So how is it that Iran is still advancing its nuclear program by leaps and bounds? The knowledge Iran is gaining from these advancements can never be erased. And we continue to wait and hope. But hope is not a national security strategy. Now, I believe in a diplomatic path, but we must ask, using every tool we have, how do we serve the U.S. strategic interests here? If Iran were to break out tomorrow, what is the United States prepared to do? If Iran begins to enrich uranium to 90%, what is the United States prepared to do? Using every bit of leverage and deterrence, how do we stop Iran from mastering the weaponization for a nuclear device? I want to hear the administration's plans to better enforce the sanctions regime we have put in place that now looks like a sieve. I want to hear your plans for working in lockstep with our European and other allies around the globe to sharpen Iran's choices. I'd like to hear the administration's plans in detail for what the administration is prepared to do to stop the growing oil trade between Iran and China and Iran's oil trade with Venezuela and Syria. I want to hear your plans for how to end Iran's hostage-taking of our citizens. And I want to hear your plans for how the administration is going to bring home Americans wrongfully detained in Iraq, in Iran. Siamak Bakr, Namazi Ahmad Shagri, Murad Tabaz, with or without the JCPOA. And of course, we can never forget about Bob Levinson and his family.
So I want to hear your plans to bolster the security of our partners in the region so they can defend themselves with or without a return to the JCPOA. The United States must demonstrate we have the will as well as the military capabilities if absolutely necessary to defend our people and our interests. We must back up President Biden's statement that Iran will, quote, never get a nuclear weapon on my watch, close, close. I think we must prepare for the increasingly obvious reality we face in 2022. A return to the 2015 nuclear deal is not around the corner, and I believe it is not in the U.S. strategic interests. We need to tackle what comes next, and we need to hear your plan. I hope your testimony today can begin to lay the groundwork of such a strategy. But if that plan includes the possibility of a deal with Iran, I want to make clear that it must be subject to congressional review under the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act of 2015. Congress has and will continue to play an important role with respect to Iran policy, and I would expect the administration to follow the law. With that, let me turn to the ranking member who's coming. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. First of all, Mr. Miller, thank you for taking the time to meet with me, which you do from time to time, and I sincerely appreciate it. Uh, You don't have a difficult job. You've got an impossible job. The administration's given you something. uh, They've given you a rubber hammer to do a job that a steel mallet couldn't do. And uh, I appreciate your initial efforts in that regard. But as we discussed in our most recent meeting, the time has long since passed that it's time to turn our attention uh, in other directions. Here we go again. The administration has argued that Iran is galloping towards a nuclear device, and we're left with no choice uh, of, the J- of the choice of the JCPOA or an unconstrained Iranian regime. This is a false choice. It remains that the JCPOA was fatally fa- flawed in 2015, and it is fatally flawed today. The JCPOA fails to adequately contain the Iran regime and safeguard American national security interests. We're all familiar with the deal's sunsets. The conventional weapons embargo has already expired. The deal's ban on ballistic missiles expires next year. The entire deal remains bound by a termination day in 2025, where the UN Security Council ends consideration of Iranian nuclear matters and the resolution's snapback mechanism ceases. Iran's nuclear program is only one aspect of its malign behavior, though, as the chairman so adequately pointed out. Over the past four decades, the Iranian regime has murdered its own citizens, murdered Americans, made hostage-taking a central tenant in its foreign policy, exported terrorism on a global scale, and represents the principal threat to stability in the Middle East. Despite promises of, quote, longer and stronger, which we were all made in this room and made individually to each of us at the beginning of this administration, it's clear that that was a bumper sticker only, which I believed and said at the time. The current approach does not address Iran's regional terrorism, ballistic missile activity, ongoing Iranian threats to former U.S. officials, or returning American hostages to their loved ones. In fact, Sanctions relief fuel Iran's terror uh, proxies. Just as uh, the the 2015 JCPOA did, we saw pallets of cash delivered to the Iranians at the uh, conclusion of the negotiations of that uh, in 2015. And where do you think that money went? We know it didn't go to uh, to help, help the Iranian people 
for domestic programs or anything else. It was converted, at least partially, uh, into missiles that today uh, have been transported to uh, to Lebanon, to uh, Syria, and are aimed at Israel and other places. That's where that cash wound up. Worse, the JCPOA provides a potential sanctions lifeline to Russia that will enrich Putin for continued nuclear work in the midst of his assault against U- Ukraine. Talks remain stalled, and it's clear the Iranian regime is negotiating in bad faith as it always does, and while it continues to levy unreasonable demands to re-enter the nuclear deal. Instead of prolonging uh, this period of uncertainty, it's long past time the administration end negotiations and implement a more holistic Iran policy. We'd like to hear about that uh, holistic policy today. We need to end uh, this never-ending parade of reference to percent enrichment and volume uh, of nuclear material. Uh, This is not the measurement of Iran's evil, but only a mere small part of it. And uh, the the Israelis have vowed to handle that end of the problem, and they will, and Iran knows it, and we know it. On the economic front, sanctions enforcement is lacking. Sorry, sadly lacking. We must close sanctions loopholes, including Chinese purchases of Iranian oil. Iran, confident in its resistance economy, must feel significantly more economic pressure. On the diplomatic front, the United States must press for a censure of the Iranian regime at next month's IAEA Board of Governors meeting. For too long, Iran has harassed and obstructed legitimate IAEA monitoring efforts without penalty. In tolerating this, the administration has greatly damaged the legitimacy and integrity of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and the IAEA. We must hold Iran to its commitments and make clear our support for the NPT and IAEA. In addition to action at the IAEA, we must bring international pressure to bear. Iran must become a renewed topic of discussion at the UN Security Council. For too long, Iran policy has been an issue that has divided us from some of our European partners. They have come to realize uh, that uh, the malignancy they are dealing with and are willing to move forward with a new sense of reality. Finally, regional deterrence and U.S. response uh, to Iran attacks against our troops and diplomats has been again sagging. We must increase deterrence in the region, increase joint military exercises with Israel, and ensure our partners have the right tools to defend themselves. Putin's unprovoked attack and murder of thousands for no reason whatsoever, other than the fact that good people living in nearby free uh, democratic countries have bound themselves together to respond and effectively uh, respond to such an attack, has once again reminded us that evil, real evil, exists in this world, and we must always be vigilant and ready to respond when and if it it erupts. Only a comprehensive, only through a comprehensive, multilateral approach can we confront the Iranian challenge. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. Mr. Malley, um, again, welcome. Uh, We'd ask you to summarize your statement in around five minutes or so, so we can... Uh, have a conversation. I know there are many members who will have questions. Your full statement will be included in the record without objection. The floor is yours. Mr. Chairman, ranking member, members of this committee, 
Thank you for this opportunity to talk about the Biden administration's policy towards Iran. This is both an urgent and important topic. But like so many of us in this room, I'm a parent. For all of us, the horrific mass murder of elementary school children makes it hard to focus on anything else. Let me begin with some basic facts upon which I'm sure we can all agree. The Iranian government's actions threatened the United States and our allies, including Israel. Iran continues to support terrorist groups. It has an appalling human rights record, the brutal response to ongoing protests being only the latest reminder. It unjustly detains foreign and dual nationals for use as political pawns. While we've been working intensely with allies and partners to deter and counter this dangerous array of Iranian activities, we have not had the luxury of focusing exclusively on them. Instead, our administration has spent much of the past year seeking to restore strict limits on Iran's nuclear program, including an unprecedented international monitoring regime. We've also been repairing vitally important ties with our European allies that are necessary to hold Iran accountable and change its behavior. That is because when President Biden came into office, he inherited an immediate crisis, an unbridled Iranian nuclear program that makes every other problem we have with Iran more dangerous and intractable, as well as badly frayed relations with our European allies who were spending as much time arguing against US policy as they were countering Iran. This is the unfortunate result of the last administration's decision to unilaterally end US participation in the JCPOA at a time when Iran was complying with it. To the extent there's disagreement in this room, it boils down to this. Are we better off reviving the nuclear deal and in parallel, using all other tools at our disposal, diplomatic, economic, and otherwise, to address Iran's destabilizing policies? Or are we better off getting rid of the deal and banking on a policy of pressure alone to get Iran to accept more onerous nuclear constraints and curb its aggressive policies? We do not need to rely on thought experiments to answer this question anymore. For we've gone through several years of a real-life experiment in the very policy approach critics of the JCPOA advocated. Many of us strongly disagreed with this policy at the time, but of course we could not prove that it would fail. Then we predicted. Now we know. The simple fact is this. As a means of constraining Iran's nuclear program, the JCPOA was working. Leaving it has not. Under the JCPOA, Iran operated a tightly constrained and monitored nuclear program. It would have taken Iran about a year to make enough fissile material for a bomb, which would have given us and our allies the ability to know what Iran was doing and the time to act should Iran make that fateful decision. Without those constraints, Iran has been accumulating sufficient enriched uranium and made sufficient technological advances to leave the breakout time as short as a matter of weeks, which means Iran could potentially produce enough fuel for a bomb before we can know it, <coughs> let alone stop it. Worse, rather than compelling Iran to make concessions, the prior administration's so-called maximum pressure campaign resulted in Iran's maximum non-nuclear provocations. These included increasingly brazen attacks by Iran and the armed groups it supports against our Gulf partners and our own forces, leading to a 400% increase in attacks by Iran-backed militia
between 2019 and 20. In this context, it is hardly surprising that a preponderance of former Israeli security officials, including two more just today, has stated unequivocally that the U.S. decision to leave the deal was among the most damaging to Israel's safety. These are hardened security professionals from across the political spectrum, all of whom would do whatever necessary to defend their country. That's why we will seek a return to the JCPOA as long as we assess that its non-proliferation benefits are worth the sanctions lifting we would provide. And we will submit this deal for congressional review pursuant to an hour were we to reach it. Of course, as I speak to you, we do not have a deal, and prospects for reaching one are tenuous at best. If Iran maintains demands that go beyond the scope of the JCPOA, we will continue to reject them, and there will be no deal. It is not our preference, but we are fully prepared to live with and confront that reality if that is Iran's choice. We have no illusion. Nuclear deal or no nuclear deal, this Iranian government will remain a threat. As we have throughout the negotiations, we will continue to strongly push back. Today, as part of that ongoing effort, the Treasury Department is announcing new sanctions targeting an international smuggling and money laundering network that has facilitated the sale of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of oil for the IRGC Quds Force. So here's our strategy. Fully reviving the JCPOA if Iran is willing to do so, building on that deal without the specter of a looming nuclear crisis to seek a broader follow-on diplomatic outcome, and throughout, regardless, deterring, countering, and responding to the full array of Iranian threats in close coordination with Europe and, crucially, with Israel and our regional partners, while credibly demonstrating that we will never permit Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. Thank you. I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you, Mr. Malley. We'll start a series of uh, five-minute uh, question rounds. So, um, first of all, I am glad to hear your statement that uh, if there is to be any deal, that it will be subject to ANARA. Appreciate the administration's commitment to that. Um, also glad that the hearing uh, has unveiled that uh, the Treasury Department is now in a significant sanctions mode on uh, what you just described. Uh, I had not heard that before, and so I'm glad to hear that. Uh, also uh, glad to see that there has now been public confirmation uh, that the president has made a determination uh, not uh, to revoke the IRGC uh, uh, foreign terrorist organization designation, uh, despite Iranian demands. I salute the president and the administration for keeping on that designation. So uh, those are all positive things. But as I listened to your testimony, I heard a lot of it uh, focus uh, on the, uh, the Trump administration's decision, which I join with you, I think was a mistake. Uh, I didn't support the JCPOA. I didn't think it was strong enough. It dealt with the issues that it needed to deal with. And I also didn't support the Trump administration's decision to leave it unilaterally without allies, without a plan, without a strategy. And we have seen the results of that. But having said that, uh, you've had a long time uh, since then in these negotiations. Uh, and Iran has not shown itself at this point. You, you don't have a deal. Uh, and But what we do have is Iran uh, evading <coughs> sanctions through China and others. The administration has not pursued sanctions on China and others in that regard. <coughs> what we do have uh, is uh, violations uh, separately from the JCPOA 
with the IAEA's, uh, Iran's commitment to the IAEA, which still go unanswered. Uh, and uh, what we do have is that uh, Iran's breakout time right now is short enough that if Iran chooses to do it, it could be missed totally by those who monitor it. So lamenting the past, uh, while I recognize that, is not uh, a strategy to move towards the future. Uh, and the future is now. So question one, will we uh, move to censure Iran at the June 7th IAEA meeting for violating its obligations to the IAEA about sites that have uh, not had the access and information that the Iranians have not ultimately provided pursuant to an independent uh, obligation to the IAEA. Mr. Chairman, thank you. We are consulting as we speak with the European allies and with Israel and others to decide exactly what we'll do at the, at the Board of Governors meeting in June to make sure that Iran is held to account. And uh, I appreciate consultations. Those are always good. But what is our position in those consultations? Are we saying we believe that Iran should be censured at the IAEA for not meeting its obligations? We certainly believe that Iran needs to be pushed to meet its obligations. What we want to do is move in concert with Israel, with our European partners. So I don't want to be ahead of that. But I think you could be certain that we will take action that is necessary to well, hold Well, I, I Iran assume to that we are leading in some of these discussions. We're having consultations, yeah. but... I've never known an administration to make consultations and not have a point of view during the course of those consultations. And here's an example. If, if we cannot have Iran meet its obligations to the IAEA uh, independently, uh, which is the, the watchdog agency of the United Nations on these questions, uh, then how are we to have faith and confidence on anything else? Let me ask you this. Uh, why is it that we uh, are still... Uh, keeping the door open, even though uh, the Secretary of State said that if it ended February, it wasn't much uh, benefit anymore. Uh, and even though the threshold is so close, what is your plan B? Because I get no sense of what that plan is. Is it to get our European allies, who we've worked very hard, I give the administration credit for that, uh, to ultimately now join in a multilateral sanctions regime? against Iran for its violations? Uh, is it to sanction countries like China that are permitting millions of dollars to flow to Iran in violation of sanctions and others as well? Uh, is, is it to show our military capabilities so that Iran has to think twice uh, about uh, making any such dash over the end, not only on enrichment, but on the detonation, which is still a question? Uh, is it to try to constrain Iran's ballistic missiles, which right now have overmatch in the region, not because I say so, but because our former CENTCOM commander says it? I mean, what, what, what is the plan? So, Mr. Chairman, what I would say is that we're not waiting for, to see what happens with the negotiations to take action on all of the issues that you raised. Sanctions enforcement, which have not begun today. They began from the first day President Biden took office. We've imposed over 150 sanctions designations since that time, addressing ballistic missile, human rights violations, support for terrorism, and the like. We're also working day in, day out with Israel in particular, but also with our European allies on a strategy to counter 
deter and respond to any Iranian action, whether it has to do with attacks against our partners, its UAV program, its ballistic missile program. And, and, and to come back to your question about the IA, we're also working with them to make sure that Iran is held to account for what it's done in the past. But all of these problems would be much worse and much more difficult and much more intractable if Iran were a threshold state on the verge of acquiring a nuclear bomb. And that's why, together with our European allies, who want us to continue, continue in this vein, we're doing what we can to resolve this issue diplomatically, okay. even as we are not leaving any stone unturned to counter right, well, the Well, at some activity. point, maybe the administration will share with this committee, preferably in open session, but if it must, in classified session, what is that plan? You say we're consulting and working with our allies, but to do what? To achieve what goals? To have what sanctions enforcement? To deal with what... Uh, element uh, of uh, the uh, Iranian uh, nuclear program and its missile program, for example. I don't have any sense of what that is. I don't have any sense of what that is. And if I don't have any sense of what it is, then I don't know how we're supposed to decide whether this is a, a path forward to achieving the goals that I believe we collectively want. Senator Rich. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I share the chairman's goals and the frustration of not knowing where the administration is on this. You, you just made the statement that you've imposed 150 sanctions. To what end? I mean, uh, every day things seem to uh, get better for Iran, even though you keep putting these sanctions on. I, I heard what you just said about sanctioning the uh, IRGC for oil sales, but my goodness, sanctioning the IRGC, to what, to, to, to what end? I mean, they've been sanctioned I don't know how many times. Uh, what I want to hear, just as the chairman uh, uh, referred to, is I want to hear about sanctions uh, that will stop the oil sales to, uh, to China. Uh, that's, uh, that, that is a huge problem here, and it is, uh, it, it's ongoing, and it's, it's uh, resulting, as the chairman described, in a very significant cash flow into Iran, which they smilingly take, particularly with the price of, uh, of oil today. So... Uh, yeah, you know, sanctions on the IRGC, uh, I'm underwhelmed, and I think everybody else is. I suspect the IRGC is. They probably shrug and laugh and, and uh, continue to cash the checks that, that come from China. What, what can you tell us about what the administration is going to do about sanctions? They're, they're, they're toothless. So, Ranking Member, let me say that I, I, I don't disagree. We have to do, we all have to do a better job. And this is a bipartisan issue. It's an issue that goes back decades about dealing with Iran's activities. But you also make a very important point that sanctions are not the silver bullet. It was during the period of maximum pressure. President Trump imposed somewhat in the order of 1,600 new sanctions designations. And it was during that period of maximum pressure, as I said, that we saw maximum destabilizing activities, unprecedented brazing attacks against oil tankers, against oil fields in Saudi Arabia, against our troops, all of that during the time when supposedly we were supposed to crush Iran's economy so that it would uh, improve its behavior. So we need to do a better job. We need to have a, and we are working, and, and I'd be happy, Mr. Chairman and, and ranking member, to say more in the classified setting about our plans with, with our allies in the region and in Europe. But the, the reality is this is a challenge that we have faced for decades. We need to do better. And the best path forward in terms of the nuclear program is to get back into the deal, but that doesn't leave us off the hook for all the other issues, and we're working on them. We have not stopped working on them, and I think the Iranian leadership would beg to differ 
with a description of their economy doing well. Their, the real has lost 85% of its value since 2018, 25% of that under President Biden's watch. Inflation at 40, 40%, unemployment rising, protests in the streets. I don't think this is a strong regime that is basking in, in, uh, in, in being able to, to circumvent sanctions. It is a, a regime under duress, and that's because of its own mismanagement and our sanctions. Well, Ms. Malley, I, I uh, think it's a fair point to say that the economy is not good in Iran, but it's adequate. Uh, they seem to be getting by. Uh, certainly, they've got the, the weaknesses that you've described, but they keep putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, turning to your point about, uh, well, uh, uh, former President Trump got out of the JCPOA, and my gosh, all these th- terrible things happened. Well, what are you guys doing about it? If that, if that wasn't the answer, what are you doing about it? You came in and said, don't worry, we're going to have an agreement that is longer and stronger. That, that train has left the station a long time ago. It isn't longer and it isn't stronger and it doesn't even exist. Uh, in fact, what we're hearing about is it will be shorter and weaker if indeed you do wind up getting into an agreement, which uh, uh, I, for one, certainly hope that you don't. Um, uh, what, what's your plan? What, as, as the chairman said, I, I don't know what the policy is. Uh, you, you, keep, you keep sitting at the table and you keep negotiating. How long is this going to go on? So, Mr. Ranking Member, and it was a question the chairman asked as well about our, how long we will go. Our goal is to, we will, we will, we're prepared to get back into the JCPOA for as long as our assessment is that its non-proliferation benefits are worth the sanctions relief that we would provide. But again, that doesn't mean that we sit by and only negotiate. We've not lifted a single sanction that President Trump imposed. We've added to those sanctions. We've taken steps with our partners to go after their UAV program, their ballistic missile program, to strengthen both Israel and our Gulf allies' partners in their ability to counter the threat that Iran presents. So we're doing all of that whether the JCPOA talks continue or not. At this point, it is our assessment, our, our technical expert assessment, that the non-proliferation benefits of the deal are worth the sanctions relief that we would provide. Well, let me, let me go back to the, to the question that Chairman, the line of question the Chairman did, and that is, on the first of the year, uh, the, Se- the Secretary of State told us, three months and that's it. We're done. We're through. It's no, it's no good anymore. W- when does this end, and why should we believe you uh, in any way, shape, or form when you don't keep the commitments that were made before, the longer and stronger deal that was promised and the cutting it off if you don't get a deal? Why should we, why should we believe anything at this point? So on, on the issue of longer and stronger, I do want to, to, to clarify that. Um, I think what President Biden said, what Secretary Blinken said, what all members of the administration said was, let's get back into the deal and use that as a platform to get a longer and stronger deal. Partly, if in large part, because it's much, it's much safer to negotiate a longer, stronger deal when we know that the nuclear program is in check rather than have to, to negotiate with the looming threat of a threshold state before us. That is not a negotiation that's going to be easy to lead. It's going to be a long-term diplomatic effort. And to do it knowing that any day Iran, without us having to know it or is putting us in a much So we hope to get back into the JCPOA. If we don't, you will see continued sanctions enforcement, tightened sanctions enforcement. You will see intensified action with our allies and partners 
But all of that is continuing again, regardless of whether we get back into the JCPOA. So being on the, at the table doesn't tie our hands any more than it's tying Iran's hands. If they feel free to go after us, we will feel free to respond and to take action against them. So when are you going to end? When are you going to walk? When is this going to happen? I said, I, I, and, and I apologize, it's true that we've said things uh, in the past. What, is, what has always been our guiding star is what are the non-proliferation benefits that our experts tell us and the, and the intelligence community tells us. But again, being at the table doesn't mean we're waiting. We're not waiting, we're acting, and we're acting to promote our interests, to make sure that Iran is, cannot uh, export its instability and its, and its missiles and its UAVs across the region. Thank you. Sen Senator Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Your service is informed. We appreciate regular basis. Some were in the Trump administration very much also the designation of the IRGC remaining and not on the table, and that the administration is imposing additional sanctions on Iran. And I'm also pleased with the acknowledgement of the Inara review uh, by Congress. But I want to go back when this agreement was entered into in 2015, taking effect in 2016, that argument was made, that point was made, that being in an agreement with Iran on a nuclear uh, containment would be the platform for us to make additional progress to normalize relations with Iran and deal with their non-nuclear issues. We didn't see any progress after we joined the JCPOA. When President Trump was JCPOA, and I agree with Chairman Menendez, I thought that was a, a terrible decision with Iran in compliance, the withdrawal. But we, the European allies met with us here on Capitol Hill. We had their attention. They were prepared to do very visible action with the United States to deal with the non-nuclear, to, to move Iran along. We didn't see any progress from Iran in willingness to, to deal with these other issues. Now we're talking about rejoining the JCPOA. I have not seen very visible action by our European allies in regards to Iran's non-nuclear activities, from the support of terrorism, their ballistic missile violations, their human rights violations. So it is frustrating that we're told that if we're in this platform, we'll have a better chance for Iran on these non-nuclear issues. It's very frustrating because we know President Biden has repaired the damage done under the Trump administration with our coalition of European allies. We see that very clearly with Ukraine. It would seem to me that we have negotiated, the Biden administration has negotiated in good faith. The Iranians are a moving target. Why aren't we seeing greater cooperation with Europe in regards to isolating Iran on its non-nuclear front, as well as imposing additional penalties for their violations of the JCPOA commitments uh, and uh, on the nuclear front. Senator, thank you for that, that important question. I think it really goes to the heart of what uh, President Biden 
has sought to do since coming into office, which is, as you say, to make sure that we act as one with our European allies so that we could confront Iran rather than be in the position, unfortunately, we've been, we had been in since 2018, of European countries spending as much time trying to counter U.S. policy as they were trying to counter Iranian actions. We are now in a position where we are working lockstep with the Europeans, and they wanted to see us, they want to see us make a good faith effort coming back into the JCPOA. They tell us, and I'm sure that if you had them here, they would tell you, the last thing they want, particularly today when we're dealing with a crisis in Ukraine, is have a nuclear crisis in the Persian Gulf. So they're hoping and they're still pressing to see whether we could reach this deal. And we want to show them that we're making every effort consistent with our national security interests to see whether we could resolve this through a reentry into the deal. But I am absolutely confident that regardless of the outcome, the Europeans will be with us when it has to do with sanctions enforcement, action at the IEA Board of Governors, action in terms of strengthening our partners in the Gulf to counter Iran. So this has been critical. It's been critical, as you say, in Ukraine. It's just as critical here. We see it in our conversations, in the plans that our militaries and other I would just agents. make this one point. If we were to rejoin the JCPOA, and we don't have specific commitments from our European allies in regards to these other issues, I am very dubious as to whether we'll see the follow-through by our European allies. They seem to have been restricted by being in the JCPOA rather than being aggressive in dealing with these issues, uh, these other issues. So unless there's an understanding before the United States uh, were to re rejoin the JCPOA, I don't hold out much hope that we'll have the unity that you are referring to. I hope I'm wrong about that, but I hope that you would understand that we need to see definitive commitments from the Europeans to join us uh, in uh, Iran's uh, non-nuclear violations as well as containing their nuclear proliferation. If I may, we have those commitments. We have uh, spoken to the Europeans extensively, precisely in the direction, Senator, that you, you just indicated. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Johnson. Hey, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Malley, let's, let's just state the obvious. Uh, if Iran gave up its nuclear program, opened itself up, itself up to inspections, all the sanctions would be lifted. You'd have billions of dollars flowing in their economy, and the Iranian people would be far better off, correct? Senator, if we get back into the JCPOA, we no, still... No, no, no. Answer the question. If they give up their nuclear program, their economy will do quite well. So what, is that, what that should tell you is they are putting up with all these sanctions, they are harming their economy to a great extent because they are dedicated to getting a nuclear weapon in the JCPOA or any new agreement that you would enter into will not prevent them to get to that point that we can't do anything about it, correct? It may take a few more years, but they are absolutely dedicated to becoming a nuclear power, correct? Senator, President Biden, as I'm sure his, any successor and all presidents before him, have made clear they would never, ever allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon and will do what it takes. So are you, gonna, are you going to provide Israel the weaponry and the support for them to take out uh, their program if it gets to that point? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear the question. Are you, going to, are you going to provide Israel the weaponry they would need to take out that weapon as Iran rushes to become a nuclear power? Happy to discuss those details in a classified okay. setting, but I can't let, say let me the president ask, let me has, ask you, has how, taken how much, no, no option off the table. How much money flowed into Iran from, as a result of the original JCPOA? How, how, many, how many billions of dollars? 
I'd have to go back to set the exact number, but they, 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 did, they did benefit from sanctions. Yeah, give, give me an estimate. You're negotiating this stuff. You ought to know this, correct? Well, we're negotiating where we are today. How much cash was transferred in the first JCPOA? There's been a lot of misinformation. This cash was not transferred uh, to, well, to Okay, to well, Iran, what's except- the truth then? What's the truth? To, I mean, again, you're negotiating a deal. You ought to know what happened in the past. What happened but, in the Senator, past? I can tell you what we know will happen now. What will happen now is if they can sell their oil at current rates, we know that they could get about $5 billion a month. Okay, so have, you, have you read Mark Dubowitz's testimony? Uh, he'll be providing that in the second panel from the Foundation of Defense of Democracies. No, I've not seen it. I'm sorry. Well, in his testimony, uh, one of his associates, Saeed uh, Ghasminijad, an expert in Iranian economy, said that uh, your deal would uh, provide a financial package worth up to $275 billion in the first year. And over the next five years, Iran could receive as as much as $800 billion in sanctions relief. And and by the way, he spells it out based on what assets they have. And this is coming from the Central Bank of Iran, also from the International Monetary Fund. I mean, they're showing the sources. They lay it out in quite detail. You really ought to look, look at this testimony. Do you dispute those numbers? Senator, those, those numbers are so wildly exaggerated compared to what our intelligence community and our, and our administration believe that I, 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 the order of magnitude is just uh, is, is off. So again, I, my point being is Iran is absolutely dedicated to becoming a nuclear power. Uh, you said... Nuclear deal or no nuclear deal, this Iranian government will remain a threat. Why in the world would you want to enter in an agreement that will not literally prevent them from becoming nuclear power? It might delay it a little bit, but it will not prevent it. Why would you enter in an agreement that will pump hundreds of billions of dollars into the economy and the military of the largest state sponsor of terror who were, again, people on this committee are talking about the JCPOA didn't change their behavior other than maybe for the worst. It didn't you know, result in agreements on these other areas. Again, Iran's behavior has become worse. With my final minute here, let me ask you a question. You said you'll uh, present this for congressional review. Uh, it was my amendment during the first JCPOA that would have deemed that a treaty and required Senate confirmation. And I would argue, were that the case, had we done that, the JCPOA might have been a far better deal, maybe worthy of remaining in, certainly diff- more difficult to get out of. Will you commit to not only just congressional review, but submitting any deal that you make with Iran that would have a great, you know, will have grave consequences on world security as well as U.S. security? Will you submit that to the U.S. Senate f- for confirmation as a treaty to make sure that this body? agrees with you that it's a treaty worth entering into. Senator, as I said, we were submitted for review under the, 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 the under Inara, which is the requirement, and that, that's what we have committed to. So that's it. Not a treaty, not, not that hurdle of getting 67 United States senators agreeing with you that this is an agreement worth getting into with Iran, because that would not have happened with the JCPOA, and that was a major flaw in that agreement as well. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Malley, thank you for being here today and for your efforts with Iran. In December of 2021, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said 
of Iran, and I quote, that if diplomacy fails, we're prepared to turn to other options. Now, I recognize that that statement was made before the war in Ukraine and that significant international attention has been diverted. But can you speak to what other options are on the table? Senator, thank you. Um, of course, there's only so much I could say in this setting, but I want to make this uh, as clear as I could, and, and I think it will respond to some of the other questions we've had. President Biden is unequivocal. Iran will not be allowed to obtain a nuclear weapon. That's been a longstanding bipartisan position by prior administrations, and we are confident that future presidents will make the same. We believe that diplomacy is the best way to achieve this goal, and by the way, so do our Israeli allies. So does the Defense Minister of Israel, who just reiterated that when we met with him only a, a week or two ago. That said, we will do whatever is necessary to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon, taking no option off the table. Again, those options we could discuss in a classified setting. Um, well, Mr. Chairman, I hope we'll have the opportunity to discuss those issues in a classified setting. Can you speak to Hezbollah's fortunes in Lebanon? They didn't do as well in the elections as um, were expected. Um, the leadership in Iraq continues to hold on and make progress in Iraq. Um, how, how are those ac actions and events in other parts of the Middle East affecting the ability to negotiate any kind of an agreement with Iran? Thank you, Senator. Again, an important question, which, 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 which goes to the, the comprehensive approach we need to have towards Iran. Because fighting Iran's destabilizing activities does require sanctions. It does require an international coalition to press Iran in international fora. It requires working hand-in-hand -hand with Israel, with our Gulf partners, with the Europeans, to counter their ballistic missile program, to counter their UAV program, to respond to their attacks. It also entails diplomacy and strengthening the central government in Iraq and weakening Hezbollah and weakening Iran's ability to take advantage of the chaos in the region, which is why the truce that has been achieved in Yemen is so important. So even as we go after Hezbollah, even after we, we go after uh, the transfer of, of weapons to, to the Houthis, sustaining and consolidating that truce is a very powerful message to send to Iran that de-escalation, ending conflict, ending the chaos from which it profits is in our interest and in the interest of our allies in the region. And do we see anything happening in Syria that may have an impact on Iran? Do we have, are we discussing what's happening in Syria with any of our allies? Senator, my, my job is, uh, is to deal with Iran. I'm sure there are other of my colleagues I'd rather not uh, uh, step into something where I may, I may uh, err. So uh, I'm, I'm sure my colleagues at the State Department would be, would be happy to, to, to address that. Okay. Um, this I also recognize is not part of your um, portfolio, but I was pleased to see the announcement in March regarding the release of two um, British Iranian hostages. Uh, to the United Kingdom, but as was mentioned earlier by the chairman, we also still have a number of U.S. and European hostages who are being detained. And are, is the plight of those hostages being considered at all as part of our negotiations with Iran? Thank you for raising that. Uh, uh, I think there's no issue that is, that is keeping us awake more 
than this one. The unjust, four unjustly detained citizens, I think Chairman Menendez mentioned their names, Siamak, Bakr, Imad, and Murad. Some of them are, I know, your constituents, and I've spoken to a number of, of members of this committee about them. We have negotiated, and first of all, I just have to say, it is the most outrageous thing that Iran would use innocence, innocent citizens, and dual nationals, American citizens, others, just recently a pair of, 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 of French citizens as pawns to advance other interests. It is inexcusable, and we need to, again, find an international effort, which Secretary Blinken is, 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 is coordinating, to try to, to make sure that those who do this are held to account and that it not be repeated. But to answer your question, in parallel and separate from the negotiations to return to the JCPOA, we've been involved in indirect negotiations with Iran to secure the release of our four citizens. It is not easy. As you could imagine, Iran is, is making requests that are very difficult to meet and sometimes are impossible to meet. But we are continuing and we will not stop until all four of them are home and reunited with their loved ones. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Welcome, Mr. Malley, to the committee. <sighs> Read your opening statement. Iran was complying with its commitments under the JCPOA. Under the JCPOA, and I'm quoting from your testimony, Iran operated a tightly constrained and carefully monitored, carefully monitored nuclear program. Iran was neither complying with the compliance terms of the JCPOA, nor were they operating a, a carefully monitored nuclear program. There were side deals in that program that uh, members of Congress weren't made aware of that, that wrote off, that excluded certain military sites from inspection whatsoever. Moreover, the very terms of, of the deal, including those secret side agreements, were not being followed by Iran, which is why this is such an incredibly grave situation. So just to reframe this, we're not talking about a deal that Iran was, was completely complying with. And a nuclear deal that's not being complied with is, is not really a deal that we can live with. We need a stronger a longer and stronger deal, as, as the Secretary of State emphasized before this committee. That was the objective of the administration. The Wall Street Journal today uh, wrote, uh, released a, a piece about, title, Iran used secret UN records to evade nuclear probe. So we're learning more about the extent of noncompliance by the leaders in Iran. The journal says uh, that uh, Iran's uh, been stonewalling IAEA investigations. Iran wants uh, IAEA, uh, the nuclear inspector. They're continuing investigations in the past nuclear weapons uh, work closed before a deal is restored. Yet the agency has blessedly pushed back, indicating that they can't close uh, these inspections because they don't have enough clarity on Iran's past nuclear work. All this is incredibly troubling. As uh, Director General Rafael Grossi told the European Parliament just earlier this month, he said, quote, uh, Iran, quote, has not been forthcoming in the kind of information we need from them. So um, 
Mr. Malley, were you aware of these efforts by Iran to hide its prior nuclear work from the IAEA? Senator, did Iran lie? Of course. Did, did Iran have a covert nuclear program? Absolutely. That's the reason why prior administrations imposed such, such crushing sanctions on Iran. Was Iran in compliance, as you say in your testimony? Uh, yes, Iran was in compliance with the JCPOA, and please don't take my word for it. You could ask the IEA, which certified on numerous occasions, very until, until uh, uh, the Trump administration. So let me inter interject respectfully, sir. Does the JCPOA require Iran to allow IAEA inspectors in to look at, at certain nuclear sites? And did Iran comply with, with those expressed terms of the JCPOA? Yes and yes. And again, don't take my word for it. Even the former administration had to certify that Iran was in compliance, and it did so repeatedly until it decided to leave the deal. So, and evidently that wasn't enough then. So the administration's position is there, there were certain terms of the agreement that weren't robust enough, and that's why the goal was longer and, and stronger. Uh, and yet we still, we, we continue to have noncompliance uh, by the Iranians, and, and they're they're not uh, allowing more information to be divined about their previous nuclear uh, weapons work. Have, are we trying to re-enter the old deal, or are we pursuing a longer and stronger deal? What is the current state of things? Senator, the current state is we're trying to, if we can, re-enter the deal and then build on that to get a, a longer, stronger deal. The problem we face is that today, as a result of the withdrawal from the deal, we have weaker and shorter. So short, in fact, that all of the steps that people feared that Iran might take at the expiration of some of the sunsets, 10 years, 15, 20 years from now, Iran is doing them today. And so weak, in fact, that we don't have any binding constraints on Iran. And again, you know, listen to some of what we have to listen to what have a preponderance of Israeli secu former security officials are saying, including two just coincidentally today. And one of them, uh, the former IDF head of intelligence until six months ago, General Tamir Heyman, said today, the situation that would have happened in 2030 under the nuclear deal wouldn't have been as bad as the current situation because Iran is unconstrained. And that's what we need to address. I am, uh, I'm, I'm praying that... Uh, we are successful in persuading the Iranians to to adopt uh, a longer and stronger approach in which they uh, are actually compliant with the terms of that and allow um, uh, very robust inspection safeguards. Uh, I, I, I don't think we have those inspection mechanisms in place with the JCPOA, which is why we need to still focus on longer and stronger. I think we're going to go in circles with respect to that, and I see my time has expired, so uh, I will uh, I'll thank you again for being here, sir. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I always like to begin where we agree, and we agree, Republicans and Democrats on this committee, that Iran should not have a nuclear weapon. We should have a policy that makes that prospect the least likely. And so you've got three ways to do that. You have economic pressure, you have a military option, and then you have diplomacy. All of them are imperfect. We're just in the business of trying to choose of those imperfect options, which is the least imperfect. So let's take the first two to understand um, how they've worked um, or how they would work. First is 
economic pressure. So the Trump administration tried this. They pulled out of the deal. They, as you have articulated, applied hundreds of new unilateral sanctions. And I just want to ask you a series of simple questions to understand what the reality was after those sanctions were applied. And hopefully these are one word answers. So after President Trump withdrew from the Iran deal and imposed maximum sanctions, did the pace of Iranian tax attacks on U.S. personnel in Iraq get better or worse? Much worse. Did Iran's support for regional proxies like the Houthis, did it get better or worse? It continued. In some cases, it got worse. Did the frequency of those proxies' attacks on our Gulf allies get better or worse? Worse. Did the pace of Iranian's nuclear research program get better or worse from our perspective? Much worse. So we tried the approach of just continuing sanctions and ratcheting them up. And by every measure, Iran's behavior relative to U.S. national security interests got worse. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the third option, the other alternative to diplomacy, and that's military action. I've heard what you said here today, Mr. Malley. You have said that the president leaves all options on the table. But what I understand is that there are severe limitations to a military option, in part because it is difficult to bomb knowledge out of existence, and the risk to spill over into a regional war is significant. And so I understand there are things you can say in an unclassified setting versus a classified setting, but just I want to make sure you don't leave the impression with the committee that there is a clean military option on the table to remove Iran from a nuclear weapons future. Can you just talk about your assessment of a military option, if that is all that's left? Thank you, Senator, for allowing me to clarify that point. I did say all options are on the table. I also said, and this is a president, President Biden's firm belief, and I think it's a belief shared by everyone who's looked into this, that by far the best option is, an, is a diplomatic one. A military option cannot resolve this issue. It could set it back, and we're happy to talk about it more in a classified setting, but there is no military response, and we've heard this repeatedly, including from... Uh, Minister Gantz, uh, uh, Israel's defense minister. So absolutely correct. It is a, I don't even want to get into the other aspects of our experience with war in the Middle East. So we know what it costs. We know what it's, what it's meant to us and to our men and women in uniform. But let's leave it at this. The only real solution here is a diplomatic one. Yeah. It, it, listen, there, there are certain things we can talk about here and certain things we can't, but there are significant limitations to the military option. And there is um, the significant risk to enormous spillover that could get the United States drawn into another conflict in the Middle East that would last a generation. Finally, Mr. Malley, um, if there is no diplomatic agreement and Iran remains weeks away from having enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon, what happens with respect to the decisions that our allies make in the region? At some point, uh, the Gulf, Turkey, starts to recognize that Iran is so close to a nuclear weapon that they have to start making their own plans as well. The true nightmare here is a nuclear-armed Middle East, and that becomes a much more realistic proposition if diplomacy does not work. Is that correct? Correct. 
Thank you. Um, Senator Paul. I think a lot of the debate begins from a fundamental misconception of what sanctions can do and can't do. There seems to be an acknowledgement now that the maximum pressure campaign sanctions didn't change Iran's behavior. But I would go probably one step further and say that it's difficult to delineate what of Iran's behaviors have changed with any sanctions over a long period of time. Now, you can argue that they came to the table when there were universal uh, universal sanctions with, with Europe and others, that that brought them to the table. But really also what brought them to the table was the carrot. The sanctions are a stick, but there was a carrot, and the carrot is the negotiation of releasing the sanctions. So some still have this misconception that we could forbid them through sanctions from selling their oil to China or Russia. Well, you could have a military embargo. You could have ships all up and down their coast and they'd still sell their, their oil and gas across pipelines and across land to both Russia and China. Uh, even a military embargo would not prevent them from this, and sanctions aren't going to prevent them from this. We need to quit looking at sanctions as the way to change behavior because sanctions, frankly, don't change behavior. Sanctions are useful as a threat. If you're going to threaten somebody and say, if you do this, we'll do this, they might be a threat to deter behavior. Or if they're already doing something you don't want, you would ask them to quit doing that in exchange for removing the sanctions. But that means negotiations. But there are some members of the Senate who say they absolutely know in their mind that Iran's going to get a nuclear weapon. So they're essentially saying there are no negotiations and that sanctions are just for punishment. I think sanctions as punishment do have some effect. They, they punish, but they don't change the behavior. The punishment has been extraordinary, the maximum pressure sanctions, and no behavior has changed. So I guess my question to you is, do you think sanctions uh, do change behavior? Do you see evidence that they have changed Iran's behavior, not maximum pressure, but sanctions in general? Senator, thank you for, for that important question. I think we have seen the effective use of sanctions that led to the nuclear deal. There were sanctions, nuclear-related uh, sanctions, that were imposed in order to change Iran's nuclear behavior. We lifted those sanctions in exchange for the constraints and the inspection regime that Iran agreed to. But the well, change in behavior is when we came to an agreement in to release some of the sanctions and to have absolutely. some relief in their trade account. Uh, absolutely. And, so, and the problem that we've seen is that the, the sanctions and the, during the maximum pressure campaign, the sanctions were unmoored from any realistic diplomatic objective, and therefore they failed. So I guess my specific question is, it seems to be the main sticking block is the IRGC being designated as a foreign trade uh, terrorist organization. Is that, would you characterize that as the main sticking point right now? Well, I think that sticking point has in some ways been resolved in the sense that we, we made clear to Iran that if they wanted any concession on something that was unrelated to the JCPOA, like the FTO designation, we needed something reciprocal from them that would address our concerns. Okay. They so said they it, is, it is, you would say, it, it is one of the main, if not the main sticking point? Well, I think as, as, as you, I think the, 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 the Iran has made the decision that it's not prepared to take the reciprocal steps. They have right. to decide now, are they prepared to reach a right. deal without extraneous demand? So I guess that gets to my next question, that you have made, there have been offers on our side to say, if you do this, we might be able to do this. Are those uh, publicly, uh, are we publicly aware of what we have asked Iran to do um, that would be sufficient for uh, removing the label? No, we, we have not negotiated in public. We, we, we can have this discussion in a classified setting. But again, Iran has rejected 
any reasonable proposal at this point, as, as, right. as, as you've heard. But I think to. it's important that if we do want negotiations, and the only way we're going to get any behavioral change is through negotiations by actually lessening sanctions is the only way you get it, unless you're adamant that they will not change behavior. If you want them to change behavior, we have to lessen. So even things such as labeling them as a foreign terrorist organization have to be negotiated. If we refuse to negotiate, they will, I think, ultimately get a nuclear weapon. So if we want that to happen, I think we have to be open to it. As far as um, advice on that front, I think it, ha it should be very specific, something they can actually demonstrate and do, whether that means something to do with funding of Hezbollah or activities of Hezbollah or activities of their proxies in other, or other nations. But I don't know if that has to necessarily be a secret. I think that could be a public debate over this. And I think there's so much fear of removing the label of what you will have political fallout from that, from both sides, frankly, that I, I don't know that I think that's probably more difficult to overcome is the political um, outbreak here at home than anything else. But I think people should realize that even if we got rid of the foreign terrorist uh, organization label, um, the IRGC has been under, as someone mentioned previously, they've been under sanctions at least since 2007 for uh, funding Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon. So there still would, still would be sanctions. But we have to at least think this through, that the only way you get anywhere is you have to uh, give something they want, and they give something we want. That's what negotiations or diplomacy is. Sanctions otherwise are of absolutely no value. And so really, it gets back to the general question. Most of it's mischaracterizing what sanctions can do. Sanctions can punish, and they are punishing. But they aren't necessarily bringing them to the table. Getting rid of the sanctions might. We're using sanctions as a threat. But I think the way that we've approached it as if, oh, we're going to stop them from selling oil to more severe sanctions, I, I think that misses the boat of actually what sanctions could be used for in a negotiation. And from at least one senator, I would say that there has to be some behavioral change that they could do. And it, it, it can't be an ask that is impossible. There has to be some ask. But I see no reason why that ask can't be a public ask. Um, but that's my advice. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Malley. I want to I encourage you to just keep the dialogue going and the administration come up with the very best deal that you can. Um, there are some on this committee who are basically telling you stop dialogue right now. Don't, don't accept that advice. Um, do your best, and then if you find a product that you think is better than what's going on right now, bring it to Congress and let Congress own it. Let Congress own whether the U.S. is a diplomatic nation or whether we reject diplomacy. Let, let us own it. You do your job and let us own whether the U.S. is pro-diplomacy or not. The problem with the U.S. and Iran is a complete lack of trust on both sides. Iran is a danger to the United States and everything that's been said by folks prior to me about Iranian dangerous activity is real. But in the Iranian perspective, the U.S. is dangerous and untrustworthy. The U.S. helped depose an Iranian prime minister in 1954. The U.S. helped install the Shah of Iran, who ruled in a dictatorial fashion over Iranians for 25 years. When the Shah was overthrown, the U.S., against the State Department's advice, gave him sanctuary in the United States. That then led to the takeover of the U.S. Embassy. Because of that horrible treatment of Americans with the embassy takeover, the U.S. decided to support Iraq in the Iraq-Iran war, giving 
military assets to Iraq that were used against the Iranian people. The U.S. gave intel to the Iraqis that allowed them to use chemical weapons against the Iranian people. In the middle of the Iraq-Iran war, the USS Vincennes shot down an Iranian airliner killing 290 civilians when that commercial airliner was in Iranian airspace. So all of the atrocities that Iran is committing in the region and the danger that's posed to the United States, those are all very, very real. But often here we like to just talk about half the story and assume that we're just like completely with clean hands in this situation. And why would Iran have any mistrust of the United States? The deal that you guys got, the JCPOA in 2015, was dramatically better than the status quo ante. Dramatically better. I remember going to Israel in the, in the months before the deal was struck and having off-the-record discussions with the leader of the Mossad, and he said, you should do this. Tamir Parta, you should do this. It's dramatically better than the status quo ante, even if it's not perfect. It, it, was, it was better because it constrained their nuclear program. It was better because it got the U.S. to not only be in partnership with traditional allies, but we were even in a negotiation and a partnership with China and Russia to try to constrain the nuclear program. And it opened up an opportunity after 65 years of hostility between the U.S. and Iran to at least be at the table and see if we could work something out and do the only thing that ever brings trust back is win it back little and by little and by little. But only two years into the deal, the U.S. blew it up. When the IAEA said Iran was complying and we shifted the focus away from Iranian activity to U.S. good faith. We destroyed the trust building opportunity that if it had gone forward, it would have taken a long time to build the trust back. But now that the U.S. has walked out of a deal that Iran was complying with, why would they do a deal? As soon as the U.S. walked out of that deal, Essentially, all the real negotiations with North Korea over a deal stopped because why would North Korea do a nuclear deal with the United States if the U.S. blew up a deal that was working with Iran? And so, yes, there is a siren song up here that says, stop talking. Oh, and, we'll, and, if, and if Iran gets a nuclear weapons, we'll let, we'll let Israel worry about it. I would urge you, do not listen to that siren. Do not listen to that siren. Keep talking. If there's a deal that you think is better than what's happening right now, and I think you have a pretty clear-eyed assessment of the pluses and minuses, I urge the administration to enter into it, submit it to Congress under an ARA, let Congress own the decision of whether or not the U.S. wants to be a pro-diplomacy nation or not. I yield back. Um, thank you, Senator Kane. Um, are there any Republicans uh, present and waiting to be recognized to question? Uh, in the absence of that, I will proceed to question. Uh, Mr. Malley, thank you for appearing uh, before the committee today. Um, while the conflict in Ukraine has uh, appropriately held a lot of our attention in recent weeks, uh, we have to also remain focused on the ways in which Iran's nuclear program, its aggression in the region, its uh, undermining of global norms and um, its support for proxies continues to uh, challenge and destabilize uh, the region and our interests. Uh, I remain concerned about the prospects of returning to the JCPOA given 
Iran's uh, nuclear program advancement, their defiance of international norms. Um, but uh, eager to hear from you about what you think might be um, the strategy in the region and to confront uh, Iran's other uh, behaviors as well. Um, virtually every conversation I had this past weekend in Europe was about Russia, uh, Russia's aggression in Ukraine, Russia's um, continued violation of uh, global norms through the atrocities being committed by its troops. Russia played a central role in the JCPOA uh, as the steward of enriched material that was uh, exported uh, from Iran to Russia, their low enriched uh, uranium stockpile. Uh, what concerns might you have about Russia's involvement in negotiating and implementing uh, a return to the JCPOA? What safeguards uh, are there in place to ensure that uh, our sanctions against Russia and uh, strong and united sanctions by the West against Russia for their aggression in Ukraine, Ukraine don't interfere uh, with the implementation uh, of a renewed uh, JCPOA? How does that play out? Thank you, Senator. First, I want to make a point in, in response to what Senator Kane said. Uh, we, are, we are seeking a return to the JCPOA, but I want to make it clear, as I sit today, the odds of a successful negotiation are lower than the odds of failure, and that is because of the excessive Iranian demands and which, to which we will not uh, uh, succumb. To your question, uh, uh, Senator, I think there's been a lot written about Russia's role, which has been pure fantasy. Russia has not played a central role in these negotiations. I think our European allies would take offense at hearing that. They have been in the driver's seat. They're the ones who've been negotiating. They're the ones who care about Iran's nuclear program as we do. So Russia has played a role because it's part of the P5, of the permanent members of the Security Council. And as you mentioned, back in, in 2016, they played a role in taking in the excess, uh, the, the excess enriched uh, uranium from Iran. Um, we'll have to see what happens this time around, but that was the role they played. Um, they supported the deal then, and uh, we would expect all of, if we reach a deal, that all of the P5 plus one uh, would, would respect and, and Are implement. any provisions being explored for an alternative uh, partner in the negotiations serving as the steward for enriched material from Iran? Yes. Um, if I could just move on to um, what what else is the administration planning uh, to do um, to undermine Iran's um, destabilizing efforts in the region, its brutal human rights record, its um, support for proxies? Talk through, uh, if you could, with us some of the details about what the administration's doing to constrain or push back on those activities at the same time you're uh, negotiating with our European partners uh, on the nuclear program. Uh, thank you. So... As, as we were mentioned earlier, we are still enforcing our sanctions and will continue to enforce sanctions that are targeting Iran's destabilizing behavior. More than that, we are working with Israel, with our Gulf partners, and with the Europeans to harden our defenses, to conduct dynamic force deployments in the region, including long-range bomber overflights, maritime security efforts to interdict, to, to take away Iran's ability to ship its, uh, its UAVs, its ballistic missiles, its equipment, to, a non, uh, to, to, to militia and non-state actors, disrupting financial flows as we did today with the sanction we announced, and if necessary, conduct defensive strikes to deter Iran and its partners and proxies from attacking us. And we're doing that in consultation, I think cooperation that has never been better with Israel on all aspects of our policy, and again, things that we could talk about in a classified setting, so that regardless of the disagreement we may have about the JCPOA, that pales in comparison to our joint efforts 
to push back against Iran's destabilizing activities, whether it's support for proxies, whether it's ballistic missile program or, or UAVs. So the, and, the four Iranian-Americans who are either detained or, or barred from leaving Iran, Siamak Namazi, Bakir Namazi, Morad Tabaz, and, and Ahmad Sharji, um, is there any prospect uh, in these negotiations of a prisoner exchange? And what would the administration's approach be to securing their return if there is no uh, nuclear deal? Thank you. As I, as I said earlier, this issue is more important than anything else uh, in many respects because it concerns, as you say, four unjustly detained innocent Americans. And I know the personal interest that you've taken it and, and I know the families are very grateful for that. Um, we've negotiated in parallel, separate from the nuclear deal, a possible deal with Iran that would result in the release of the four of our four unjustly detained citizens. It's an outrageous, outrageous form of behavior, and I wish we didn't have to do anything. They should just release them tomorrow. But we know who we're dealing with, and so we're negotiating. We hope to be successful. We hope that they could be soon reunited with their loved ones, but we're not there yet. There's a number of regimes that do this around the world, uh, and I think it's important that we continue to work um, diligently, tirelessly to secure their return uh, and to not reward uh, the Iranian regime in any way for the ways in which they're um, oppressing their own people and breaking with all sorts of norms. Um, thank you for your testimony. My understanding is there's no other Republican uh, seeking recognition, so I'll move to Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, President Trump blew up the Iran nuclear deal and then left a minefield to make it difficult for any successor to cleanly re-enter. But President Biden knows that the alternative to diplomacy is far worse. We will see more enrichment, more proxy attacks, and a risk to a direct war. The Iran nuclear deal is not a panacea, nor was it ever intended to be. It is, however, a verifiable agreement that cuts off each of Iran's three pathways to a nuclear bomb. Trump's policies of maximum pressure actually led to maximum enrichment and maximum tension that nearly led the United States and Iran to war in January of 2020. If we hope to avoid Iran from becoming another North Korea, a point of no return, we have to get back into the deal without delay. So I'd just like to ask you a few questions, um, Special Representative Malley, about whether or not we're better with a deal or no deal. Uh, so if we pick a deal with Iran, isn't it true that Iran would be required to ship out of Iran an estimated 40 kilograms of uranium enriched to 60 percent, the enrichment level of greatest concern, as well as its entire stock of enriched uranium uh, enriched above 3.67 percent? That is correct. All of it will have to be shipped out. And that means that Iran's current breakout time the time it takes to get enough fissile material to get a bomb will go from days uh, to around six months uh, to actually have uh, the nuclear weapons material needed for a bomb. Is that correct? That's broadly accurate. We assess now that we're, it's, a, it's a matter of short, very few weeks, and we would get to uh, many more months if, if we were back in the deal. If we pick, again, no deal, is it true Iran could decide to enrich up to a weapons-grade level of 90% in between inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Correct. That is correct. 
Uh, and how will um, no deal or plan B, in other words, a military attack against Iran, uh, extend Iran's breakout time? That's a difficult question to answer in this, in, this, in this setting. What I said, and I said in response to Senator Murphy's question, is we know that a military strike is not an answer to Iran's nuclear program. So, uh, so no-deal policies uh, have not only failed to tighten the lid on Iran's nuclear program, it lifted them entirely. But let me follow on. Did President Trump's maximum pressure campaign effectively curb other aspects of Iran's malign and destabilizing activities in the region. No. Can you move in just a little bit? Sorry, not in the least. Not in the least. Uh, Is it true that in 2019 and 2020, attacks by Iran-backed groups increased exponentially in the region and following the assassination of Iranian General Soleimani in January of 2020, we almost went to war with Iran? Correct. Thank you. Um, Plan B, that is a military attack or no deal at all with Iran, could also mean um, that there are going to be military strikes on Iran's nuclear facilities. Have past strikes uh, against Iran or sabotage permanently derailed the progress of Iran's nuclear program? All I could say is that Iran's nuclear program continues apace. So we know that military action will fail to stop an Iranian nuclear weapon. It may very well spur it to cross the threshold. If we were to use force, is it fair to expect that Iran may take actions such as attacks on our troops, our partners in the region, attacks on Saudi Arabia's energy facilities, and disruptions of sea traffic in the Strait of Hormuz? I don't want to speculate too much, but I think those, that's a fair assessment, yes. Uh, so for me, it's a cut-and-dried um, case of why a deal, while imperfect, is far superior to no deal. The IAEA inspections and monitoring of Iran's facilities will be lost completely without a deal. We will be left in the dark about Iran's breakout time, that fog will lead to calls for military action by the United States or its allies uh, against Iran, which, if taken, would at best temporarily derail Iran's nuclear program and more likely put American troops into harm's way in the Middle East, perhaps sparking an all-out Middle Eastern war. We can ill afford to stumble into yet another conflict in the Middle East. Uh, Thank you so much, Mr. Malley, for all of the superior work which you are doing with the Biden administration. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Senator Barrasso. Thanks so much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, From the first days in office, uh, the Biden administration really has failed, overwhelmingly failed, to prioritize energy security. State Department's been working to cut deals with brutal dictators, Uh, In order to access more energy resources, we saw it again last week. That's when the administration announced a decision to start easing oil sanctions on Venezuela. Now, you've been negotiating a deal to eliminate sanctions on Iran's energy sector. Our adversaries would love, would love to see us more dependent upon them to meet our energy needs. 
Our experience of buying Russian energy taught us, or should have taught us, that buying energy from tyrants is a dangerous proposition. Make our, it makes our nation and our allies less safe. So does the Iranian regime use energy revenue to fund its global terror campaign? Senator, Iran is a state sponsor of terrorism, and it uses its revenues to those ends. So how would you compare the environmental standards and the labor standards for energy production in Iran compared to those in the United States? I've not looked at it in detail, but I would assume that uh, our standards are higher, but I admit that I've not looked at their, those uh, in, in detail. I would point out last week in the Energy uh, Committee discussing this same issue uh, tends to be that uh, Iran and Venezuela both have much worse standards than the United States. The energy that we produce here much cleaner than the standards in either of those locations. So Iran has the world's fourth largest reserves of crude oil. I'm concerned about recent news on Iran's action in the energy sector. News reports indicate that Iran is working to revamp Venezuela's largest oil refinery. We know that Oman and Iran have signed a variety of deals in the oil and gas sector. Iran is increasing its oil exports. With the current oil prices, Increased revenues means that Iran has more money to pursue its terrorist activities. So which countries do you know are currently purchasing energy resources from Iran? Well, China is the main importer of uh, illicit importer of Iranian oil. Are, are the reported Chinese imports of Iranian oil sanctionable under U.S. law? They are. And as this morning we took action that affected uh, a, a Chinese, uh, that, that touched on China's efforts to procure uh, uh, Iranian oil. So I'm not sure what exactly happened this morning, but I was just questioning, because if so, why has the Biden administration failed to enforce sanctions on entities involved in the transaction with, with Iran? We are imposing all our sanctions, and we will continue to do so to make sure that we could bring down Iran's uh, illicit export of oil as, as low as possible. Okay. I want to talk about sanctioning of Iran's leaders. Uh, for over four decades, the Iranian Supreme leader Khomeini has been personally involved in Iran's terrorist activities and human rights abuses. He has systematically uh, oppressed his own people, committed extreme violence across the globe. A U.S. federal court held him personally responsible for the death of 19 U.S. troops in the bombing in Saudi Arabia. Federal courts also held him personally responsible for the deaths of U.S. civilians in three terrorist bombings in Israel. President Trump imposed sanctions on the Supreme Leader. Uh, media reports indicate that President Biden plans to remove U.S. sanctions on him. Do you know if President Biden made a final decision on lifting sanctions on the Iranian Supreme Leader? So, Senator, no final decision has been made. There is no deal. Nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And as I said earlier, the, the prospects for a deal are at best tenuous at this point. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about ballistic missiles. The, uh, the Obama administration failed to address and adequately respond to Iran's ballistic missile program uh, in the Iranian nuclear agreement. Uh, on July 7th of 2015, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin Dempsey, declared, quote, under no circumstances should we relieve pressure on Iran relative to ballistic missile capabilities and arms trafficking. Seven days later, the Obama administration did the complete opposite of what the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff had stated uh, in terms of what our military advisors recommended. Under the Iran agreement, the Obama administration agreed to lift the arms embargo after five years, lift restrictions on ballistic missile technologies after eight years. So 
Fast forward to October of 2020, the international arms embargo on Iran, the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism, was officially lifted. The restrictions on ballistic missile technologies are expected to be lifted next year. What is this administration's strategy and plan to address Iran's production of ballistic missiles now? Senator, we have tools at our disposal to go after Iran's ballistic missile program. Regrettably, the UN sanctions have not had much, if any, effect on Iran, and we know that from experience. Iran has flouted them. It is our interdiction efforts, it's our efforts to go after the financing of their procurement and their exports of, of ballistic missiles that can make a difference if we can work hand-in-hand hand with our allies and partners. Our efforts, our diplomatic efforts, have restitched our relationships with Europe, and we believe we're in a much stronger position now working with them to go after the very legitimate concerns that you, that you raised. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, uh, Mr. Malley, for being here and for your work. I just want to follow up on uh, ballistic missile capability. Can you describe how much worse things would be with Iran and its current and future ballistic missile capability uh, and if they reach the ability to, to arm those missiles uh, with a nuclear tip? Well, Senator, that goes to the heart of the question that we are discussing today, which is all of these problems, and the Biden administration takes a backseat to no one at the level of its concern about Iran's ballistic missile program, support for terrorism, proxy activities. But all of them would be far worse if Iran were armed with a nuclear weapon, which is why, even as we work on the other issues, we consider this one an urgent priority to see whether we can restore the limitations and put, and put Iran's nuclear program back in a box, because as your question suggests, we would be facing a much more dangerous reality today if Iran uh, was nuclear armed. So let's talk a little bit about the reality th since the Trump uh, withdrawal from the JCPOA. Iran has increased its research, development, and enrichment activities, decreasing the time it needs to produce enough weapons-grade HEU for a nuclear weapon, and now it possesses 40 kilograms of uranium enriched to 60 percent. It's very close to the threshold uh, where it could break out in between IAEA inspections. Um, and this situation will worsen if Iran installs advanced centrifuges. Um, so what caused the significant increase in Iranian nuclear activities, including uranium enrichment in 2019? Senator, as we were discussing earlier, Iran was living up to its commitments under the, under the JCPOA until 2019, a year after President Trump withdrew from the deal, at which point it announced that it would gradually uh, 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 violate the, the constraints and the requirements that it was under. And that's what's happened since 2019, and that's the situation that President Biden inherited. You know, th this whole debate is, is, is sort of actually difficult to metabolize because I get the criticisms of the original JCPOA, valid or invalid, they, you know, they have a point of view. What I don't get is this idea that, you know, someone gives you three quarters of a cheeseburger and you say, I'm so hungry, I want a full cheeseburger, I'd rather have nothing. I mean, that, that is literally the argument that, that we are having, which is not that, we're not at the point where we can criticize former Secretary of State John Kerry for he should have negotiated for more. That is angels on, dancing on the head of a pin. We are in a reality now, 
where things are measurably worse, objectively worse, because of the withdrawal. I'd like you to comment on that. Well, Senator, I couldn't, I couldn't say it any better. Uh, we are not talking about hypotheticals here. We're not speculating this is not a thought experiment, which it may well have been in 2016. People could have argued one way or the other. Now we know. We know what life was like under the deal. We know what it's like today. It was In both cases, we have to deal with a dangerous Iran and one that we're going to have to push back against. But in one case, we had a nuclear program that was in a box that, as I was, as I've said repeatedly, is re senior Israeli security officials today from former Prime Minister Ehud Barak, former Defense Minister Bugi Yalon, all say in unison the decision to withdraw from the deal was one of the most damaging to Israel's security. And more and more are saying openly getting back into the deal would be far better for our security and would create the, put us in a much better position to confront those other activities. So this is not a thought experiment. We've lived both realities, and I think the verdict couldn't be any clearer. Yeah, I mean, I remember the argument that the sunset should have been, you know, longer into the future. Fair enough. But the answer to a sunset should have been longer into the future is not let's sunset it now. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, final question about IAEA inspections. How quickly, how technically feasible is Iran's return to compliance, um, uh, assuming we, we make a deal? Tell me about the logistics of getting the IAE in there for, for, for verifiable inspections. So, Senator, as part of these negotiations, if we were to reach a deal, and again, there's a huge question mark, I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic, to, to put it uh, mildly, um, they would have to provide all of the access to the IEA, and as a first step, allow the IEA to reconstitute the baseline, to know what's happened during the years where it has become increasingly blind. And we focus a lot on the enrichment side. But what Iran has done since uh, President Trump withdrew from the deal is it's curbed the IEA's access. So the visibility, which was one of the main achievements of the deal. And what Director Gro General Grossi, which one of the senators uh, who one of the senators referred to earlier, what he would say is, we're much better off with the visibility. We are infinitely better off, infinitely better off with the visibility that the IEA, uh, that the monitoring and verification regime of the JCPOA provided. Now we see less, we know less, we're in a much more dangerous position. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Malley, um, several of my colleagues who, um, you know, view the JCPOA as a good thing, have tried to put the best foot forward for you. So I hope you will uh, entertain me with the same yes or no answers you did for several of them. Um, when we entered into the JCPOA seven years later, did we make any advances on Iran's nuclear, I mean, uh, uh, missile program? Yes or no? Compared to, I'm sorry, compared to 2016? Yeah. As we said, we're in a worse position today, accelerated since 2019. Well, forget about today, because I know what you're, you're hinting okay. at. Or not hinting, you made it very clear. Yes. We're worse off today because President Trump walked away. I get it. But even in the time before President Trump, did we, when he was in the deal, did Iran do anything to mitigate its missile program? Yes it or did no? not. Did Iran not, in fact take hostages during the period of time in which we were in the JCPOA? It did. Did uh, Iran uh, actually uh, not um, ultimately proliferate its proxies during the same period of time that we were in the JCPOA? It continued to support its proxies, yes. Did it not continue to destabilize the region during the JCPOA? Yes. And did it not have drone strikes against uh, our allies and our own bases during the JCPOA? 
Um, I'd have to recall. I do not think during the time that uh, that 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 we were in in the deal. I think that started after President Trump. Uh, I, I I would I would uh, urge you to go back and and look at the the record. They may have increased, but we had drone strikes. So the uh, and none of those uh, questions and the answers you gave me are hypotheticals. Correctly, they were all no. realities. Absolutely. So. Uh, let me ask you, how is it that Iran is in compliance with its obligations to the IAEA safeguards agreement, given that Iran hasn't provided answers to the IAEA? So I'm sorry, I, I, uh, 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 Mr. Chairman. I've said clearly Iran was in compliance with its JCPOA commitments. It is not anymore. It has not been in compliance with its safeguards obligations, which are separate from the JCPOA. Okay. So it was never in compliance with its safeguard obligations. Correct. It never came fully forward. And those aren't just a matter of hypothetical concerns. The IAEA found trace materials at various sites of uranium uh, and what could have been a, a production program in undeclared sites and has not been able to get those answers satisfied. Is that a fair statement? We know that Iran has been concealing and lying, which is why we need to make sure that it is and that its hands so basically, get, get no Iran, closer to nuclear. So basically, power. Iran lies by not being willing to come. They say they have an agreement; they're going to abide by it, but it doesn't abide it with the IAEA. So here's here's the problem. And 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 by the way, you you cited the IDF uh, intelligence head who said that you know uh, what would that uh, twenty thirty, which is when the sun sets in. Uh, would have been as bad as it is today, that today's a bad moment, as it would have been in 2030. That's what you, you made a reference to. W wouldn't have been as bad as the current situation was what he Right, said. would yes. have been as bad as the current situation today. So that means 2030 would have been a bad situation in the IDF's intelligence estimate. And guess what? As we speak and you are trying to negotiate, that's only eight years away. If we take the seven years' history of Iran under the JCPOA, in which it never showed any willingness to deal with its missile proliferation, in which it never uh, ultimately showed any willingness to mitigate its destabilization of the region, in which it never showed any uh, willingness to pull back on its proxies, in which it arrests, I mean, unlawfully detained as, as hostages, American citizens, then this expectation, this is where the disconnect is. The expectation that bringing us back to a deal that isn't the same deal, by the way, because everything I've heard publicly is that at best we'd get six months, not a year. Six months is much different than a year. And my understanding is none of the sunsets would be changed. If that's the case, then all the aspirations of what supposedly comes on afterwards, and I would dispute with you the characterization that the administration through the Secretary of State made that that was a foundational, that stronger and longer would come after an agreement. That was never the statement of the Secretary of State. I ha he was here before this committee. He said from the very beginning that the effort was to have a stronger and longer agreement, which I concurred with. But never was it, you got to get into the JCPOA as it was, and then we will look for a stronger, longer agreement. Because then I would have disputed with him, as I would with you, that if seven years of experience shows us that none of that was possible during those seven years, 
then why in God's name would it be possible when the Iranians just have to hang in there for another seven to get to where they want to be? So this is the disconnect in trying to understand why the fixation of getting into an agreement that is worse than the one we have, admittedly because you're dealt a different set of cards, but nonetheless worse than the one we have, is, is, is much better. And so uh, I look forward to having a classified hearing so that we can explore with you and other members of the administration exactly what is uh, the plan moving forward, either while you keep the door open waiting, but that waiting is dangerous when the Iranians can now clearly cross the threshold at virtually any moment, uh, and we may even lose when they have accomplished that based upon all the amassed material they have, and without doing anything else. So I look forward to having a classified session so we can explore uh, those questions. With the thanks of the committee for your testimony, uh, we appreciate it. We're going to excuse you now, and uh, we have um, uh, some uh, a private panel coming up. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member. As uh, Mr. Malley leaves, let me welcome uh, Mr. Kareen uh, Sajapur, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, Mr. Shahjapur has written extensively on Iran and U.S. foreign policy towards the Middle East. He's also advised uh, senior U.S., European, and Asian officials and has testified numerous times before the U.S. Congress, and he's an advisor to the Aspen Institute's congressional program on the Middle East. And prior to his current role, uh, he was with the International Crisis Group based in Tehran and Washington. We welcome him to the committee. We also welcome to the committee uh, uh, Mr. Mark uh, Dubovitz, the Chief Executive Officer of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Mr. Dubovitz uh, is an expert on Iran's global threat network and U.S. policy. He's advised various administrations and lawmakers, testified more than 20 times before the U.S. Congress and foreign legislatures. He is a former venture capitalist technology executive who founded the FDD's Iran program and co-founded uh, the FDD Center on Economic and Financial Power, Center on Military and Political Power in China program. Thank you both for uh, joining us. Um, we'd ask you to summarize your statements in about five minutes. Your full statements will be uh, included um, in the record. Uh, and Mr. Sanjabor, we'll start with you. Thank you, <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, ranking members, and members of the committee for inviting me today. Uh, I would like to talk about the nature of the Iranian regime and a sober U.S. strategy to contend with it. I would argue over the last four decades, no government in the world has had a more clear and consistent grand strategy than the Islamic Republic of Iran. And there have essentially been three components to Iran's grand strategy. Number one, they have sought to topple the U.S.-led world order. Number two, they've sought to replace Israel with Palestine. And number three, Iran has sought to remake the Middle East in its image. These aspirations of Iran will continue regardless of whether or not the nuclear deal with Iran is revived. Part of the reason for the consistency of Iran's grand strategy over the last four decades is the fact that Iran has only had two leaders since 1989, Ayatollah Khomeini, the father of the Islamic Revolution, 
And from 1989 to the present, Iran has been ruled by the current Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. He has not left Iran since 1989. And for Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, the identity of the Islamic Republic is premised on hostility towards the United States. The former president of Iran, Mohammad Khatami, in fact, once told me in a private setting that when he was president, when Mr. Khatami was president, the Supreme Leader used to tell him that uh, Iran needs enmity with the United States. The revolution needs enmity with the United States. And so for that reason, I think um, from the vantage point of U.S. foreign policy, it's going to be very difficult for us to make any type of amends with the regime which needs us as an adversary for their own internal legitimacy. So what should be a U.S. strategy to contend with the Islamic Republic of Iran? I think there are three components to a sober U.S. strategy toward Iran. Number one, we obviously have to contain and counter Iran's nuclear ambitions. Number two, we have to contain and counter Iran's regional ambitions. And number three, which is, I think, very important and often overlooked, it's important for us to champion the democratic aspirations of the Iranian people. We oftentimes overlook this, but I would argue this is uh, central to how the Cold War with the Soviet Union ended. Now, over the last four decades, there's been very few instances in which the Islamic Republic of Iran has compromised, the last being when they signed the JCPOA in 2015. And I would argue the way in which Iran is, the conditions under which Iran is compromised um, has, has only been one formula. And, and, and that is that Iran compromises when it's faced with significant multilateral pressure uh, coupled with direct U.S. engagement and firm U.S. resolve. And number three, in pursuit of a concrete uh, viable outcome. Um, as much as we would like to have maximalist goals vis-a-vis goals -vis Iran to totally eradicate Iran's nuclear program or to totally expunge Iranian influence in the Middle East, these are not viable goals. I think the good news is that Iran is one of the most strategically isolated countries in the world. Its only real ally has been the Assad regime in Syria. I would like to conclude on my final point, which is that the greatest ally that the United States has against uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran are, in fact, the people of Iran, the vast majority of whom aspire to be like South Korea, not North Korea. The U.S. Uh, policy uh, tools that we've used to prevent Iran from becoming, becoming like North Korea have been political and economic isolation. But I would argue to try to facilitate uh, Iranian society's aspirations of becoming like South Korea, it also requires U.S. Uh, uh, engagement and, and, and integration. And I think the way we thought creatively about how to uh, engage with societies in the Soviet Union, in Russia, in the Eastern Bloc, um, using uh, information, inhibiting those regimes' ability to control information and communication tools, uh, I think we need to think much harder about that in the Iranian context. The very final thing I'd like to talk about uh, are, in fact, the hostages. And I thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, for, for talking about them. One of my close friends of 20 years is Siam Namazi. 
He has been held in hostage in Iran almost seven years now. And he believes that his fate, um, he, his freedom is not going to be um, uh, resolved. He's not going to become free uh, absent a U.S.-Iran agreement. And I, and I think we really need to think hard about how to uh, separate the issue of the JCPOA and the issue of freeing American hostages in Iran. And I think we need to think very hard with our like-minded allies about how to uh, deter and penalize this odian, odious Iranian practice of hostage-taking. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mr. Dubovitz. Great. Well, thank you, Chairman Menendez and Ranking Member Risch and members of the committee. It's a, it's a real honor to testify and also present uh, my recommendations, the recommendations of FDD's Iran program. It's also a great honor to testify alongside Kareem Sajapur. With the talks currently stalled, the Biden administration remains certainly committed, you heard from Mr. Mali, to taking America back to an even shorter and weaker version of the JCPOA. And if that deal occurs, the United States is going to pay an enormously high price for short-term nuclear restrictions that last less than a decade. We estimate that Iran will receive $275 billion in sanctions relief in the first year, $800 billion by 2027, and over a trillion dollars by 2031. This is all detailed in my testimony on pages 14 and 17. Uh, perhaps Mr. Mali should present his alternative estimates to the committee uh, if he disputes what we've assessed. Of course, this is all going to be a goldmine for Iran's IRGC to fuel its repression, its regional aggression, and global terrorism. And as the committee has noted, the, the problem with this agreement is that it doesn't put Iran's program back in a box. In fact, if anything, it's going to leap forward like a jack-in-the-box. The deal initially increases breakout time from three weeks to four to six months. The Israeli estimate is closer to four months. Uh, but Iran's nuclear program is going to expand over time. Breakout time drops. And key restrictions are going to sunset after a few years. In fact, by 2031, most of the restrictions are gone, including the ban on weapons-grade uranium, which is quite remarkable. I want to emphasize that to the committee. By 2031, the ban on Iran producing weapons-grade enriched uranium will be gone. Now, constraints on advanced centrifuge installation begin disappearing in 2024. Breakout time actually drops to less than a month by 2027 and to near zero after that. And after 2031, under the agreement, Iran's nuclear program can legally expand and harden in multiple sites across the country. And at that point, neither the United States nor Israel may have the bombs to destroy these hardened and dispersed facilities. So bottom line is in exchange for a trillion-dollar windfall, for the regime, the deal only provides four to six months of additional breakout time that expires after seven years, and Iran becomes a much more dangerous and wealthier nuclear threshold state with multiple pathways to nuclear weapons and ICBMs to hold American cities hostage. As one of the senators noted, a lot of the, uh, the UN snapback goes away in 2025. The conventional arms embargo is already gone. The missile embargo is gone next year. Now, President Biden should be commended for refusing to remove the IRGC from the FTO list, but this committee needs to be on guard. Iran has a track record of making outrageous demands in order to trade them for egregious concessions. The administration might try to sell Congress that they held the line on the outrageous so that they can accept the egregious, and, and we should be wary of that negotiating and marketing strategy. The question also of Congress is how the administration can contemplate lifting terrorism sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran and the National Iranian Oil and Tanker Companies 
all of which finance the IRGC and all of which are contemplated as sanctions relief under a return to the JCPOA. I also want to emphasize uh, that the administration and Congress really needs to support American victims of Iranian terrorism in their recovery of over $50 billion in U.S. court judgments, over 1,000 Gold Star family members recently wrote to President Biden asking him to maintain the FTO designation and as well block sanctions relief until Iran settles these judgments. We've talked about how all of these fatal flaws are compounded by Russia's role, the $10 billion that Russia is expected to get under a uh, nuclear contract with Iran, the fact that Putin may also hold Iran's fissile material. So while he threatens to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, he effectively becomes the guarantor of Iran's nuclear behavior. Now, the central problem with the current policy is that Khamenei does not believe that the president will use severe sanctions or force. And we've talked about it at this hearing. Most of Iran's nuclear expansion, including enrichment at 20% and 60%, occurred after the election of President Biden, who pledged during the election to stop the maximum pressure campaign. You'll see in Exhibit A of my testimony a very detailed timeline that demonstrates that. He also took advantage of the Biden administration's refusal to censure Iran at the IA Board of Governors. Hopefully in June that will change if, if Mr. Mali's commitment is followed through. Uh, he also doesn't fear the Biden administration with respect to the use of military force or any other coercive measures. And that's why he's going to do for decades uh, what he's done for the past few decades, which is he's going to escalate the nuclear program as these enrichment restrictions sunset. He's going to intensify his regional aggression, and he's going to immunize the regime against uh, sanctions pressure using this trillion-dollar windfall. He's also going to develop nuclear ICBMs to hold our cities hostage. There is a plan B. I have 16 specific recommendations in my testimony that cover that, and I look forward to discussing those and other issues with you in the Q&A. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both for your testimony. Let me just start. Uh, Mr. Sajapur, um, uh, you, you made an interesting comment. I've made this myself, but I'd like you to expound upon it, about the Iranian people and Iranian opposition. Uh, it seems to me that uh, we have lost the mark uh, we certainly lost it during the Green Revolution. We lost that opportunity. But um, what do you think we should be doing uh, more decisively as it relates to Iranian opposition and the Iranian people? Uh, thank you for that question, Mr. Chairman. I'm reminded of Henry Kissinger's quote that there are are few nations in the world with whom the United States has more common interests and less reason to quarrel than Iran. But Iran has to decide whether it's a nation or a cause. And this regime has chosen to be a revolutionary cause rather than a nation state. And, and really, as I said, the best ally we have in Iran against the regime are the people. I, I think that the reality when you look at um, the uh, collapse of authoritarian regimes, there's two key ingredients. You obviously need uh, pressure from below, but you also need divisions at the top. And we've seen lots of pressure from below in Iran. Um, but the current reality is that we have um, a regime which is highly armed, uh, highly organized, and ready to kill en masse to preserve their power. And we have a society which is at the moment uh, unar unorganized, uh, unarmed, and not willing to die to take power. I think we, the United States, we, um, as, we, as I said in my hearing, in my testimony, we don't have the power to engineer regime change in Iran. 
but we can significantly try to inhibit the Iranian regime's ability to control communications, to control information. Um, a concrete tool we have at our disposal, which in my view we haven't been using wisely, is uh, the Voice of America's uh, Persian news network. It has the capacity to reach perhaps more than 40 million Iranians who have satellite television, um, and it needs to be totally overhauled. And so I, I think I, I would take uh, for you, Senator, the, the playbook that we employed during uh, the Reagan administration vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. You know, we didn't shy away. While we were negotiating arms control deals with the Soviet Union, we didn't shy away from expressing solidarity with Russian dissidents. We did everything in our power to fight that information war. And, and we made it clear that our loyalty, as President Biden once said in a, in a hearing uh, in this chamber many years ago vis-a-vis -vis South Africa, America's loyalties aren't to um, the government of Iran, it's to, it's to the people of Iran, and to simply express I agree. Um, that, that uh, solidarity. I agree. Let me ask you this. What is your best analysis of Iranian decision-making today with respect to negotiations on its nuclear program? I think the current calculations of Iran's leaders are that the United States is committed to reviving the JCPOA. And at the moment, I haven't seen from Iran's leadership a sense of urgency that if they don't act, the JCPOA will be removed from the table. I think the problem is at the moment they feel that they can get the JCPOA whenever they want to, and they're simply now trying to extract as many concessions as possible. Hmm. Let me ask you both this question. Uh, what is your view about whether a nuclear deal, such as the one that's been described here by Mr. Malley, uh, can thwart Iran's uh, long-running uh, nuclear ambitions? Well, Chairman Menendez, I, I opposed the JCPOA in 2015. Like you, I, I opposed President Trump's withdrawal from the JCPOA. But I think now in, in 2022, if you, you've got to look at Iran's strategy here. Their strategy is to play this out until 2031, at which point they can develop an industrial-sized nuclear program with near-zero nuclear breakout, an advanced centrifuge-powered, um, easier clandestine sneak-out. They'll have a trillion dollars in sanctions relief. They'll immunize their economy. They'll have the, the potential for ICBMs, greater regional aggression. It's at that point in 2031 where they, they know that they can then break out to multiple nuclear weapons without any country being able to stop them, which is the definition of what a nuclear threshold state is. And so the current JCPOA actually provides patient pathways to nuclear weapons as opposed to actually permanently cutting off those pathways. And I think you're, you're exactly right. Secretary Blinken committed to a longer and stronger deal, which would, would permanently cut off those pathways. I think that's something that I would support. But to get there, you need coercive diplomacy. You need diplomacy, as uh, one of the senators said, but diplomacy needs to be backed up with leverage. And we need to have a credible threat of military force. We need to have economic pressure. We need to support our allies. We need to ensure that there is a, a where there's regional pushback. And I think as Kareem made very clear, the Reagan strategy against the Soviet Union has many interesting lessons for how we can counter this regime. Thank you. Senator Rich. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chair. Mr. Dubowitz, could you comment briefly on uh, your uh, estimates uh, of the sanctions relief uh, that is contemplated uh, compared to uh, what Mr. Malley and, and that 
uh, side is? And if you just, in a very summary fashion, uh, describe that generally. Yeah, so the, um, the sanctions relief, for example, in the first year, the $275 billion is comprised of about a $134 billion in frozen Iranian assets that they would get access to. Um, and then it's a, a combination of an increase in oil exports, an increase in non-oil exports, and, an in, and a decrease in import costs, which uh, add up to about $275 billion, $800 billion within five years, a trillion dollars by 2031. Um, I'm certainly very interested to see uh, Mr. Malley's estimates and the estimates of the administration with respect to sanctions relief. But my colleague, uh, Saeed Ghassamanejad, who's an expert in Iran's economy, a PhD in corporate finance, has done detailed calculations and modeling and analysis to arrive at our number. I'm certainly interested in the administration's number to see uh, why Mr. Malley doesn't agree. Well, thank you very much. Uh, both of you, thank you for testifying here today. This is It's refreshing to hear a uh, a different view of this. We sit in this room and talk about the volume of uh, uh, their handling uh, nu of nuclear matters, uh, material and that sort of thing, and breakout time and all that. Uh, you, you, you've drilled down a lot deeper into uh, things that uh, we need to widen our thinking on, and we sincerely appreciate that. Uh, Mr. Chairman, we, we have other commitments, so we're, we're going to move on, but it's certain, again, I can't under, uh, I can't understate the refreshing view that they have that, that is a different view than is expressed by uh, a lot of what we hear in this room. So thank you very much. Thank you for your testimony. Thank you. Thank you both. We, we, as I said, your full testimony will be included in the record. I look forward to be, uh, reviewing some of the elements that, of your recommendations. We have the Prime Minister um, uh, of, um, New Zealand. of New Zealand uh, that is pending, so uh, we will have to cut it a, a bit short. But we do appreciate your testimony, and we look forward to speaking to both of you as resources uh, on the issue. Mr. Chairman, uh, this, thank you. Uh, I'd like to include in the record uh, an article that was uh, uh, came from the Wall Street Journal today entitled, Iran Use Secret UN Records to Evade Nuclear Probes. It's got some really interesting information. I'd like to include Without that. objection, it will be included. Uh, this record will remain open to the close of business tomorrow. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.